A few years ago, my family was fortunate to visit Westminster Abbey in London. And if you're there as a tourist, there's a sort of path that they ask you to take that takes you clockwise around the church. And as you enter into the church, one of the first things that you're struck with are all of the tombs of the different kings and queens of England that are sometimes scattered in little side chapels, sometimes take up enormous amounts of space within the church itself. And then kind of right across from where you enter into the church from the side as a tourist is famous Poet's Corner. And this is where Charles Dickens and Geoffrey Chaucer and Rudyard Kipling and other poets and writers are buried there within the church. While we were there, one of my favorite things that we got to do, particularly because I'm a Presbyterian pastor, was we were shown a private tour of what's called the Jerusalem Chamber. And the Jerusalem Chamber is this tiny room where the Westminster Assembly met to write our Westminster Confession of Faith and our larger catechism and our shorter catechism in the 1640s. And that was really remarkable, not only just from a historical standpoint, but also just from a practical standpoint. It's a small room. There are a lot of guys packed in there. It probably stank after a couple of days. But one of the artifacts that is easy to miss in the Abbey but has such an important place within the history of England is what's called the St. Edward's Chair, or it's also known as the Coronation Chair. It was originally built in the 14th century, and it's been used for more than 700 years in the coronations of England's kings and queens. Uh, Many of you know from watching the news that it was just this past week, 70 years ago, that Queen Elizabeth became the Queen of England after her father's death. And in her coronation service, which took place a few months after that, she sat in that 700-year-old chair. And there are old black and white videos that you can find on the internet of Queen Elizabeth sitting there with this regal crown on her head, clothed in these beautiful robes, holding a scepter and an orb in her hands. England's nobility there before her, world leaders who have gathered together there in the abbey for the ceremony. And at the end of it, the crowd shouts out, God save Queen Elizabeth. Long live Queen Elizabeth. May the queen live forever. And then the band pipes up and the orchestra and the organ and it's this glorious moment of pomp and circumstance. And how dramatically different it is from the presentation of King Jesus. Instead of a gold crown with precious thorns, He wears a crown of thorns pressed down into his head, blood coming down, covering his face. Instead of a royal robe, 
He wears the purple cloak of one of the soldiers who whipped him with a whip that would have shards of metal and glass so that not just would it hurt, but it would rip open the skin on his back. And instead of the love and the affection and the enthusiasm that he deserves, he hears, away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Found it interesting this week, in my study of John 17, that it was the Gentiles who publicly acclaimed Jesus as king. First, at the beginning of his life, do you remember? When the wise men from the east came into Jerusalem, inquiring where the king of the Jews had been born? And that phrase isn't used again until the end of Jesus' life. When it is again the Gentiles, this time the Roman governor Pilate, who mockingly presents him to a murderous crowd. Behold, the king of the Jews. When Pilate paraded Jesus before the crowd, he first called out, Behold the man! And this morning, I want us to behold King Jesus. What do we see in this broken figure that is brought out to a murderous crowd. And then second, why does it matter? Isn't this just an ancient story? History that feels so far away from us? What do we see? And why does it matter? Well, the first thing that we see, the first thing that is on display in this violent coronation of King Jesus is probably the most important thing that you can ever see. And that is God. You see God as He really is toward you. In Christ's suffering, right here, moments before He is crucified, and then later as He hangs on a cross, we see the power and the glory and the majesty and the strength of God at work for you and me. Now, already you should be asking questions. Well, Eric, how is the power of God on display in this broken and bloodied man? Normally, when we think of power and glory and strength... We don't think of weakness. We don't think of mockery. We don't think of being subject to the lash or to the nails of the cross. It's a contradiction of our expectations. But friends, hear me most, hear me clearly. The God who is most truly for us is found in the sufferings of Jesus. In his brokenness, there is triumph over death and the grave. In his suffering, there is glory as he redeems a fallen race. 
the majesty and the glory and the power and the strength of God are hidden underneath Christ's sufferings. If we were to behold God's naked majesty, we would all be dead. And so God draws near to us in the suffering of Jesus Christ so that all of His power, all of His glory can be, at put, can be put to work for us to draw us to Himself by saving us. The great German reformer Martin Luther called this the theology of the cross. And by that, he meant that God is most clearly revealed in His saving power through His suffering and His death. So even though the Romans mocked Jesus, the joke is ultimately on them. Because the man who they bloodied and bruised, the man that they beat and whipped the man that is presented to the crowd that Good Friday, that man is God. And it will be His suffering, it will be His death that actually saves some of those Roman centurions. That saves some of those Jewish elders who are in the crowd calling out for His crucifixion. It will save many of the priests. It will save the thief on the cross. The King of Jesus is exercising His kingship. Not by knocking Roman heads together. Not by draining the Jerusalem swamp. Not by reforming the morals of God's people. No, He does it by taking on their guilt. By taking on their sin and their shame. By suffering the just punishment that's due to them and then emerging triumphant over the grave and death. The only God that you and I can know is standing on the steps of the Roman Praetorium. He's about to be delivered over to be crucified. So let me ask you. Do you ever call out to God, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know you. I want to know who you really are. Do you ever wrestle with what God is doing and wondering how is God at work? What is His plan? What does God even think? Folks, there's only one place to look. To answer that question, there is one place to look. And that's at the broken and bloodied body of Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So why does this matter? It matters because so much of what we American Christians believe is absurd. We just have to call it for what it is. It's absurd to believe that God wants us to be happy all the time. It's absurd to believe that God wants us to be wealthy. That God thinks that He's rewarding us with a 
happy marriage or kids that get into the right colleges or any other material sign. It's absurd to look at our lives and say, when things are going right, I'm right with God. Pride. Triumphalism. Material comforts and security. Too often we find our joy and our hope and our confidence in these things. Friends, it makes sense that the largest churches in the United States preach a health and wealth gospel. Because we want to believe that. We want to believe that God is pleased with us and the signs of His pleasure are all of the material comforts that we could enjoy. It makes sense that professing Christians flock to politicians who promise them power over their enemies. And it makes sense That suffering of nearly any kind can be catastrophic to our faith. Luther said, that's the problem with the theology of glory. And he contrasted the theology of glory with the theology of the cross. A theology of glory says that God's blessings equal God's righteousness. So you must be doing something right if your life is going right. God is pleased with you. And heck, you should be pleased with you too. A theology of glory sees suffering It's a sign that something has gone terribly wrong. Maybe it's even a sign of God's displeasure. Maybe it's a punishment of God. And so what do you do if you're suffering? Repent! Quick! Get it over with! Get it out of the way in your back mirror so that you can get back on track. If you do better, you're going to be better. A theology of glory makes God an impassioned life coach who is cheering you on from the side, imploring you to use His gifts to better your life. A theology of glory ultimately puts your salvation in your own hands. Because with the right combination of God's help and your effort, everything is going to turn out grand. You could possibly even be like God. I mean, that's what the original salesman said. The worst thing about this theology of glory, however, is that it hides Jesus from us. When we hear Pilate call out, Behold the man, we turn away in disgust. That one? That can't be God. This king? Who's so bloodied and bruised? How offensive. 
What help can he be to me? But when you're suffering, when you can't see the powerful hand of God at work in your life because the storms of your life have completely overwhelmed you when you're suffering, then you need to know that God has drawn near to you in the suffering of Jesus Christ. I know many of you are going through a season of heartache and grief. Sudden illness that sends shockwaves through your family. The pain of death. The nagging feeling that life isn't going to get much better. And that it could probably get worse. Friends, moments of suffering are not stains on the beautiful tapestries of our lives. They are original to the design. And they are used by God to draw us to himself. Because in our sufferings, we are invited to share in the sufferings of Jesus. Listen to how the Bible talks about the relationship between our suffering and the sufferings of Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, he's praying, he says, that I may know him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. In Colossians 1, the apostle says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Now, we don't have time to exegete all of those passages, so let me just give you a brief sense of what the Bible means here. Our sufferings have meaning because they are encompassed by the sufferings of Jesus. Jesus' afflictions that are on display there in Jerusalem. They enable us to suffer affliction with Him. The crowd that day, they were done with Jesus. Away with Him, they told Pilate. Away with Him! Crucify Him! But today, you and I, we must follow King Jesus. Because his way of suffering is also the path that God has determined for all of us to follow if we're to know him and his power in our lives. Just as Christ's sufferings were the vehicle for achieving life and salvation, friends, God uses the same pattern in our lives too. What looks like defeat right now 
It's the pathway to victory. God always achieves His greatest work when we are brought to the end of our own resources, when we are brought to the end of ourselves. The 19th century English author and Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle He said, there is nothing which shows our ignorance so much as our impatience under trouble. We forget that every cross is a message from God intended to do us good in the end. Trials, he goes on to say, are intended to make us think. To wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, to drive us to our needs. Health is good, but sickness is better if it leads us to Jesus. Prosperity is a great mercy, but adversity is a greater one if it drives us to Christ. Friends, who will you find? Who will you find at the bottom of your despair? Who will you find at the end of your own resources? Who is left standing there when you have no more tears to cry? It's not an impersonal force that governs the universe. It's not a lecturing deity who tells you everything that you've done wrong that's brought you to this sad state. You will behold the man, King Jesus. And he will hold you with the hands that still bear the scars of the nails that pinned him to the cross. And he will draw you to his side that the sword pierced. And he will tell you, I am making all things new. Let's pray. Lord, we hate suffering. We hate every minor inconvenience in our life. And it's not just because of the pain. It's because too many of us for too long have wrestled with a bad theology. Oh God, give us new eyes to see our suffering for what it really is. It's the birth pangs of the new creation. It's the opportunity that you give us every day to turn to you. It's the longing for what is new. O Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and end our suffering, not just for our own sake, but for your glory and for your majesty, for the sake of your kingdom. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.